Hey, I'm Maggie from Los Angeles. I'm Colin from Louisville. Hey, I'm Harry Nelson from Lebanon, Indiana. The Sound of Young America is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm John Hodgman, in for Jesse Thorne. My guest is the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. Tyson wears many hats. He's the director of the Hayden Planetarium and a research associate at the American Museum of Natural History. He's also the host of Star Talk Radio and the PBS program Nova Science Now. His upcoming projects include a new version of the TV series Cosmos, originally hosted by Carl Sagan, and a new book titled Space Chronicles. Here's a clip of Neil deGrasse Tyson hosting a NOVA program about whether it's possible to travel to Mars. Even after just a few days in the fridge, a lot of food can get pretty unappetizing, mostly because mold and bacteria begin to take over your food. So imagine eating meals that have been sitting around for two to three years. That's what the astronauts who go to Mars are going to have to do. You know, I met some chefs trying to cook up some delicious dishes that'll provide all the comforts of home, even when the dining room is a hundred million miles away. Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, welcome to The Sound of Young America. I'm happy to be in any sentence that has the word young in it. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's a a horribly inappropriate title for a show that I am hosting, (laughs) because I am an old person, and uh, you are ageless. You're timeless. (laughs) Sweet of you, yes. So you are the director of the Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History. Is that that's not my so? day job? But I mean, professionally, okay. I'm an astrophysicist, and that's that's what drives how I think. The lens through which I look at the world, what drives my commentary, and and the, you know, yeah, I, I run the universe part of the American Museum of Natural History. But like I said, that's my day job, and the rest of what takes takes my time is everything else. Right. So that's just something you do for pocket money? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you got to live, you know? You got to. <laughs> what does the director of a planetarium do on a day to day basis? When you wake up in the morning, you go to the museum. Obviously, you first have to put all of the exhibits back after they came to life overnight. You have to put them back where they belong. <laughs> you weren't supposed oh, to tell me. <laughs> But what does your day job entail? Yeah, here's exactly. the problem. If the astronomical exhibits came to life, that'd be the end of everything. <laughs> the asteroid strike, the black hole, right. the colliding galaxies. Yeah. You know, and in there, of course, we demoted Pluto. And so. Right. Uh, but so I, I work, I'm a member of what we have here is what we call the Department of Astrophysics. And so we have, uh, I'm among them, PhD research scientists and graduate students and postdocs. And so it's a whole little academic enclave. And for part of the time. We do research on the universe. Occasionally, we'll rethink of another exhibit. And every few years, we redo the space show, which is sort of the flagship offering of the museum on the contents of the universe. And how do you determine what needs to be updated in the space show? 
like, guess what, everybody? There's some more space we found. Exactly. <laughs> We're all active scientists. And so you know what needs to be rethought or represented in a new way. Or some things, it's not like, it's not as though we found that they're wrong, but they're just no longer interesting. Can you give me an example? Sure. For decades, we didn't know the age of the universe to within a factor of two. Some people said it was 10 billion. Others said it was 20 billion years old. This is a big yeah. frontier subject. Hubble telescope figured it out. It's like 14 billion years old, somewhere between the two numbers. It's not an interesting problem anymore because it's solved. So why spend floor space on it when there are other interesting problems that are on the frontier? So you'd be swapping exhibits based on what is interesting and what is tantalizing, even if there's nothing wrong with it, as it had originally been conceived. Since the age of the universe is now known and therefore boring. That's <laughs> exactly. <laughs> did I say boring? I, maybe no, I but did. I'm saying, I'm saying, okay. what is a more tantalizing problem that you would swap in? Okay. For example, uh, what was around before the Big Bang? before the beginning and are we the only universe out there could there be we have a word for it a multiverse where there are multiple big bangs going on and multiple expanding universes and and there's good philosophical reasons to think that as well as mathematical but philosophically it was it used to be well we're on earth and nothing else looks like this so we're unique no you're one of eight nine planets orbiting a star well the sun is surely special look how bright it is no all those little dots of light on the sky those are stars too oh well surely this collection of stars is the universe no no it's just a galaxy there's a hundred billion other galaxies. Okay, so all these galaxies, that must be the universe. Yeah, we've got the one universe. Well, maybe there's more than one universe. Are, we, you, are you currently sitting on a shag carpet next to a lava lamp? <laughs> and my legs are bent in the lotus position. <laughs> well, speaking of that, speaking of, well, well, of no, no, the no, whole, I'm going to freak you out one oh, more step. Okay, so please. if you take this... You think I, do you think I can't handle it? So let's find out. So if you right. follow this through... Suppose we do learn that we're in a multiverse. That would be interesting, okay? Sure. That, and, and it would be consistent with all the other sort of demotions that we've had to survive over the centuries of scientific discovery. But then you have to ask, are we just one of many multiverses? <laughs> I don't have to ask that. That's your job. That's why you, that's why you get the office at the planetarium. We'll hear about Neil deGrasse Tyson's upcoming version of the TV series Cosmos after a break. It's the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. You see, Jesse, I said it just like they do on the radio. Production of the Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. It's the Sound of Young America... I'm John Hodgman, in for Jesse Thorne. My guest is the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, on Twitter recently, yes. Uh, what is your Twitter handle again, sir? Neil Tyson. Thanks for uh, putting that out there. N e i l t y s o n. Straight uh, Neil Tyson. You announced uh, that you are, uh, are planning to host a new version of the television show, The Seminal television show cosmos yes is that correct yes television series that's correct yes excuse me television so at least series. one person reads my twitter stream that's good 
I think well, <laughs> many of us. Do. No, thank no, thanks for calling that out, and so that is indeed the case. The original Cosmos was hosted and in, in part created by the the famous. Uh, Astrophysicist was he an astrophysicist? Uh, back then, the word astronomer was a little more common. All right, so let's, used, but, let's yeah, say but that. We, we were in the same business. The the original Cosmos was uh, hosted and in part created by the famous astronomer Carl Sagan. Correct. Uh, for public television, I believe. Correct. Nineteen eighty. Correct. Uh, uh, fourteen parts. Thirteen parts. I had to get something wrong. <laughs> no, that's because the, a full season was was twenty six weeks that's half a 52 week year and so if you did a half of a season it would be 13 parts not everything has to be a math problem <laughs> carry the two it's all there. we're about to begin a journey through the cosmos we'll encounter galaxies and suns and planets life and consciousness coming into being evolving and perishing and it's a story about us how we achieved our present understanding of the cosmos, how the cosmos has shaped our evolution and our culture, and what our fate may be. It was an amazing landmark television series describing the whole universe, really in terms that people popularly had not thought of the universe uh, before. All true. Um, in, in Particularly in, in what we now consider to be the Sagan stereotypical billions and billions and billions suddenly the 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 minutia of our lives in the history and space of the universe was made very palpable to us there at the end of the carter era on on public television uh which i think is part of the reason why public television has become so vilified ever since um what did the original show mean to you well, I think that's an excellent question. I was already shaped by then. I was on my way to graduate school. So I wasn't one of the many who used Cosmos as a way to gain interest in science and then possibly even become a scientist. But I knew the whole trajectory of how powerful those messages would be. He wasn't just teaching you science. He was he was imparting a deep understanding of your relationship to science. And he was your private tour guide. It was not the. It was not one of these documentaries with a disembodied voice and lab hopping from one institution to the next with one talking head after another. He was your. He was like your friend. And our goal going forward in the 21st century version of this is to um, maintain the spirit of that show, but give it all new content and content relevant to today, delivered in ways that modern viewers uh, would most resonate. Well, now thirty some odd years. Yeah, it's a whole generation. Yeah, yeah. that is that is both uh, uh, an instant and an eon in cosmological time. Oh, how poetic! You're getting all poetic on Yeah, well, here. you know, <laughs> I studied creative writing okay. at Yale University. So, what's changed scientifically that you're going to have to account for? Well, so the original show had some burden on it that we don't have, and that was at the time. What was the most science you would get on TV? It would be like Marlo Perkins, you know, under uh, you know from the mutual of mutual Omaha, Omaha with the animals, yeah. and that was more sort of descriptive animals. It wasn't. Is more... he the one who threw the lemmings off the cliff? <laughs> Actually, I think that was Disney. Disney oh, okay. first showed that. And then you had the other guy in the ocean, Jacques Cousteau. And those were more sort of 
I view them as kind of like stamp collecting science is, oh, here's a pretty fish and here's a beautiful animal. But nonetheless, that was your best exposure to science you could hope for. So the original Cosmos had at least half its content delivering textbook science to you. We don't actually have that burden going forward or that obligation because you... How long do you have to sit in front of your TV with your channel surfing before you hit a, a science show? It's, it's wait an hour and there's a science show on in one of the science, um, um, one of the networks that give priority to science. You know, the Science Channel or Discovery Channel or mm-hmm. Learning Channel or History Channel. VH1. <laughs> That's right. So what it means is that for this next generation cosmos, we, uh, we don't have to go there. We can focus on all of the elements of science that made it matter to you as a citizen of the world. Just to get into a procedural issue, some of the topics that you discuss are extremely hard to understand. And someone I know I was talking to before this mentioned that you have an amazing gift for explaining extremely complex uh, phenomena in ways that suddenly are graspable to the lay person. And clearly that's something that you have a gift for and something you have to approach when you are making a TV show like Cosmos for a wide audience. Is there a trick to explaining dark matter, for example, to someone who has never heard that term before? Oh, dark matter is really easy to explain precisely because we don't know anything about it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that one's easy. So I, I, I give that one sentence. 85% of all the gravity that exhibits itself in the universe is traceable to some source about which we know nothing. We call it dark matter. We call it Fred. We, we don't know what it is. We don't even know if it's matter. But don't you see, Dr. Tyson, when you have, on the one hand, science saying you're inestimably smaller than you thought you were, and then on the other hand, saying 85% of the stuff out there, we don't know what it is. Don't you think people are psychologically going to have a reaction to this? Like, why am I bothering with you anyway? Yes, they might. However, part of what we also have to train people to do is to learn to love the questions themselves. If all you want in life are answers, then science is not for you. We have things that always give you answers to things, and like religion. Here's what will happen to you after death if you behave this way. This is what was going on before. This is what this answers. It's all. It, I, maybe there might be some deep, profound religious questions, but everyone I know who turns to religion is because they need answers. In science, on the frontier, the, the answers haven't come yet. That's why we have people working on the frontier, and so it's the frontier that excites a subset of the public who are perfectly content, steeped in ignorance because of the prospect that they might one day resolve the problem. We're talking with Neil deGrasse Tyson. This is The Sound of Young America. I'm John Hodgman sitting in for Jesse Thorne. As I mentioned, you appear on a number of television shows, and not that long ago you were on the uh, Real Time with Bill Maher. Just, just recently, yes. And you were talking about the defunding of the James Webb Space Telescope, which I believe is the, the successor to the Hubble Telescope. Is that correct? That, that's correct. All right. So let's listen to that for a second, and then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about that. Well, first of all, let's clarify what's, what the NASA budget is. Do you realize that the $850 billion, uh, what was it, with the banks? TARP. TARP. Yes. Bailout. The bailout. The bank bailout 
That sum of money is greater than the entire 50-year running budget of NASA. Wow. And so when someone says, we don't have enough money for this space probe, I'm asking, no, it's not that you don't have enough money. It's that the distribution of money that you're spending is warped in some way that you are removing the only thing that gives people something to dream about tomorrow. Do you, you remember the 60s? <laughs> Do you remember the 60s and 70s? You you didn't have to go more than a week before there's an article in, 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 in Life magazine. The, the, the home of tomorrow, the city of tomorrow, transportation of tomorrow, all that ended in the, in, in the 1970s. After we stopped going to the moon, it all ended. We stopped dreaming. And so I worry that decisions that Congress makes doesn't factor in the consequences of those decisions on tomorrow. Tomorrow's gone. You know what? We, we the, playing, the playing for tomorrow, metaphoric tomorrow, not the literal tomorrow. They're playing for the quarterly report. They're playing for the next election cycle. And that is mortgaging the actual future of this nation. The rest of the, country, the, rest of the world is going to pass the bottom. Is there a culture or, or country or government that is as engaged with space as we were in the, in the 60s and early 70s or in the way that you would like us to be engaged now? Uh, I, is there anyone yeah, who's doing China, it right? China. China. Yeah. Yeah. Their, their, their space program is still in its infancy, but they're taking it very seriously, and they recognize it as a point of national pride, as did we, of course, in the 1960s, and a demonstration of the success of their system of society and government and, and management. So, you know, we should not be surprised that other nations are valuing their space enterprise the way we once did and the way we would ultimately simply take for granted. So if you were given the funds to refund NASA, to what level would you want to fund it? And what would you set as a priority? I would I would double its budget, first of all. From what to what? Uh, oh, so right now, uh, just actually just dropped this last cycle, but I would double it from what it once was. So it was up around $19 billion. Mm-hmm. So I'd go, let's say, to $40 billion. Per minute? <laughs> per year. Per year, okay. And I would create the capacity to go anywhere you wanted to go. Is it strap-on boosters? Is whatever it is. You want to go to Mars today? That's the three of these rockets and four of those. Strap them on, get in the top, and you're off. Oh, there's an asteroid headed our way. Let's check it out. That's a different configuration. But you have the modularity to pull that off. So you're talking about like a, a modular IKEA-style <laughs> rocket. <laughs> been a while since I've been in IKEA. Where you can build a wall unit that's, that's suitable to your collection exactly. of CDs. Mm-hmm. And in that way, you just pick the destination that matters in the moment. Well, what destination matters? I mean, it seems to me that if, if what we're missing is an arbitrary goal vis-a-vis the moon, or a la the moon, I should say, uh, to inspire us psychologically and then pay us all of these um, sort of uh, uh, technological dividends, isn't the, isn't the choice of goal meaningless? I, our presence in space should not be pivoted on goals. It should be pivoted on capacity to explore. Okay. And so it'd be like saying, we're going to build an interstate system so that you can get to Los Angeles. Yeah, that's why we built it. Okay. <laughs> but there's many other, there are like other... Was there, was there another one? Was, <laughs> was Eisenhower secretly drawing a picture of a cat across the nation that we didn't see? <laughs> the spider veins on... <laughs> yeah. Well, look, you know, I, I, think that, I think that in a time of, as you say, existential 
anxiety about where we are as a country at all to ask for increased funding for something where people feel it's incredibly intangible to explore a cosmos that we are told is greater than we could ever explore That's an and, excellent and, point. and does not care about us. Um, there are going to be people who ask, where should we go and why does it matter? I would say if you had one target yeah. and then you got to that target, yeah. then it's like, okay, what do you do now? That's kind of right. what happened to the moon. Kennedy says, we're going to go to the moon. Then he shot. And so then everyone goes to the moon. We get to the moon. It's like, uh, okay, uh, yeah. bring a car next time. All right. Let's play golf. All right. right. And at some point, where, what's the next step? And the next step was not built into the Apollo program. And so, the, so yes. What should it have been? It's, it's harder to get people to rally around a non-gold goal. You're absolutely, right. you, you hit the nail on the head there. But we need to reach a maturity where we say this capacity to explore space will bring us Mars. It'll bring us the moon. It'll bring us asteroids. It'll bring us Venus. So I, that's the capacity that I want. Then we find a killer asteroid coming. Let's send Bruce Willis. Whatever you got to do, we got the capacity to go there. Go there. Go to Venus. Find out why it's a runaway greenhouse. Go back to the moon. You know, there might be fossils of ancient Earth life on the moon cast into space from asteroids that hit Earth long ago. Now you see, now you got me going. Now, now I'm interested. Well, I'm saying. That's all I needed to hear. Can you imagine that? Fossils on the, fossils on the moon. Multi-billion-year-old fossils, far older than anything we would ever find on Earth, because our continents keep getting subducted into volcanoes. As long as you, as long as you keep feeding me premises for science fiction novels, oh. I will keep funding NASA. Oh. How about that? Well, that's an interesting point. It's the sound of young America. I'm John Hodgman, in for Jesse Thorne. My guest is the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. I, you want to you want to hear something out of left field? What? I need to know your opinion. On the singularity, yes or no? Oh, it's uh, just just for our for our listeners. Just uh, do you want me to recap what we're talking about here? Oh, uh, sure. Why don't you give? You, 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 plus, you had some relate. You had a little thing going with it, didn't you? I have a robot arm. That's okay. what you mean. <laughs> what, g- give your thing, and I'll and I'll and I'll tie a bow on it. Go ahead. Well, the singularity is a is a is a, is a cultural concept. I would say even more than it is a scientific concept at the moment. Uh, it is a futurist concept. Uh, that is emerging um, and and largely uh, advocated or or discussed in public by the inventor Ray Kurzweil. That due to uh, Moore's law, that computing uh, doubles in capacity. What every year? What is it? Every year and a half. Every year and a half. I have to repeat that. Hang on. Every year and a half. Mm-hmm. Every year and a half. Correct. Uh, that uh, that technology uh, will uh, that uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, will sooner than we think be able to replicate a human brain. And then once it does that, sooner than we think, artificial intelligence will become smarter than the human brain. And then we will be able, that artificial intelligence will be able to solve some of the problems that still elude the human brain, uh, most notably or provocatively, uh, the mechanical process of aging, such that it could either be slowed or stopped, or, tra- or consciousness transferred into technology itself, and that we will sooner rather than later pass through a, a period of no return in history called the singularity, where our essentially we'll have moved to a different kind of species, one that combines 
uh, biological intelligence with artificial intelligence and biological life with uh, mechanical, uh, biomechanical life. This is also tied into gene therapies and, and, and miniature robotics and that sort of thing. That's a beautiful summary. And that after that, the, the point of the singularity is not merely that uh, we will become robots or the robots will take care of us and, uh, and make us immortal or, uh, or that nanobots will be developed that will cure all diseases so much as is we don't know what will happen once artificial intelligence is able to back uh, sort of a retrofit a human brain of its own. And when that happens, and it will happen sooner than we think, uh, everything will be different, and we'll reach a, a point in history where what happens after that is unimaginable to what hap- to those of us who come before it, and those of us who come after it will not be able to imagine what life was like before it. Now, there's a dimension of that that, that you left out. Did I get it right or wrong? You got it. You get a almost plus. Okay. So the almost the missing part of the plus, a gentleman's a almost plus. There you go. <laughs> is that. The notion that you'll live forever is not simply one of biology. It's the concept that once the computer can replicate all human thought, then you could actually just download your entire brain's capacity to think into some device, and then that is the functional you going forward. And it doesn't even need your body. You can put it in some other body later on if you so chose, but your existence then becomes immortal, not because you figured out how to live forever physically, but you how to preserve and maintain the capacity of your brain in the machines that have equaled the capacity of your brain. Now, not that everyone would imagine that to be a paradise if we're going to use religious terminology, but that vision of the future is pretty much the only non-dystopian vision, the most optimistic vision of the future that's going around today. Well, except every other version of that future portrayed in science fiction, such as when Skynet goes live, yeah. you know, that was a transitional point in the Terminator series. Right. That's where the machines achieve consciousness. That was not good for the humans. So No, no, I, I, I appreciate that. And there are a whole, believe me, uh, robots getting real smart. There's, a, there's an, an, an immediate aversion to that. And I'm sure that, um, you know, when when the Neanderthals uh, dreamed of uh, Homo sapien, they were dreaming out of anxiety. Exactly. Correctly <laughs> not so. Going, Can't wait. <laughs> Can't wait for those guys to come along and bash us in the head and make us irrelevant. <laughs> they were correctly concerned. But there is a strain of optimism to the singularity concept. Only in the notion that there are intractable problems that the computer could then solve that we can't at this moment. So, but of course, computers are already doing that. But I'm trying to throw, I'm throwing you a bone here, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm saying that this is the, this is the utopia. This is the, the forward thinking that you lament doesn't exist in our society and uh, popular no, culture. He's extrapolating. He's right. saying the computers are this fast today. They'll be yeah. that much faster tomorrow. Right. And let me take that to its limit. Yeah. So he's doing what everybody else does. He just right. extrapolates rather than leaps into a new so, so his leap is when there's this crossover point the whole world will be different i do a fair amount of reading of the history of science and the history of culture and in that i have found that every period every generation has somebody saying the world is going to be really different in their lifetime not in a hundred years but in their lifetime and if you look at the dates that Kurzweil gives it's what 2030 2035 it's you know most people alive today will be alive then. And so I'm 
you know, I, I don't have that much confidence in our ability to predict or to understand other things that come in from left field that will completely transform what matters. You, you want popular culture to dream of jet cars in 10 years, but you don't want to save Ray Kurzweil's life. <laughs> His brain, you're, a mo- you're a monster, sir. <laughs> I believe it was Stephen Colbert who first called you a monster. I will call you a monster. Did he call me a monster? Well, when I, when I believe so. In his it book. must have been Pluto when I was messing with Pluto. Yeah, you are the man who killed Pluto. Yeah, he, took it, he took that hard. Yeah. If it is your calling in life, and clearly it is, and your passion to remind people uh, of, their, um, of their relationship with the scientific universe, as vast as, and impersonal as it is, why would you go off and kill a nice planet like Pluto and make all those kids sad? Uh, I didn't kill a planet. Well, first, I was... You a, created a planetoid? Well, first, I was the messenger. So that's, uh, there are other people who actually did the work to discover the properties of Pluto that forced us to then reevaluate its identity. But think about it this way. We didn't lose a planet. We gained an entire new swath of real estate in the outer solar system called the Kuiper Belt of countless thousands of other icy bodies that have more in common with Pluto than either they or Pluto have with any of the other eight planets. So, so our understanding of the solar system grew by the act of going from nine planets to eight. That's how you need to think about it. Are we going to send a rocket out there? There is one. It's headed there now. We'll get there in uh, 2015. Will you go into space? I would if I got, if just give me a place to go. I tweeted once, you know, if Earth were the size of a schoolroom globe, Mars would be a mile away, the moon 30 feet away, space shuttle space station three-eighths of an inch above its surface. NASA has managed to convince us all that going into low Earth orbit is space, but they haven't convinced me. They want to send me into space. They better send me someplace more interesting than where everyone else has been driving around the block for the past 40 years. How far do you have to go in order to make it worth it to you? Moon would be good, but Mars would be better. All right. Yeah, bring the whole family. Get a good Netflix account, some good novels, you know. Do you think, do you think that, you, uh, that, that we'll have a manned mission to Mars? I think only if we view going there as a strategic move. So what we, here's what you need. Can, Look, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Let's, I understand the inspirational aspect. Mm-hmm. And I, and I believe it's important. Oh, but that's I think, never been enough think, to actually get anyone to write a check. Right. But here, so in, in a real-world situation, the only way you're going to get out into space is you're only willing to do it if you go to Mars. Yeah, pretty much. Practic- pragmatically speaking, how do you get there, Neil deGrasse Tyson? Oh. What are the elements that need to be in place before we put Neil deGrasse Tyson or a trained astronaut equivalent onto a manned mission to Mars? All right. So there are two ways to do it. One of them is the crass way, and one of them is the noble way. You probably want to hear the crass way first. Well, all I've heard from you is the noble way so far. So let's do the crass way, and then I'll see how that's Crass way. You go into the heads of state and highest brass in China, and you whisper to them and say, leak a memo that you want to put military bases on Mars. It doesn't have to be true. Just leak it. Then the CIA comes up with this memo. China's putting military bases on Mars. If that happens, we'll be on Mars in 12 months. Period. Period. I think both of you and I are now going to go to jail. <laughs> What's the noble way? So the noble way is that you double NASA's budget. That would be enough to send 
somebody, anybody, a team to Mars. That would be enough to do that. The act of doing so, oh, by the way, it'll take time to build the spacecraft and thing and design it. Who are those Martian astronauts the, the, the headed to Mars? They're, right now, they're in middle school. So you ID who these people will be, who these kids are, and then you track them. They'd be the, 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 the toast of the town in Teen Beat magazine. Everyone will want to emulate them. We all be, will be, we'll be the collective parent watching what grades they're getting. Are they being healthy? Wait, uh, uh, Dr. Tyson, you do understand the difference between noble and creepy, don't you? <laughs> no, wait. <laughs> wait, wait. No, this is, this is an A, B, C, it go, A, A goes to D. Sounds like an Aldous Huxley novel. Okay. All right, go on. So watch. All right, so you pick out, so you pick out the fifth graders who are going to go to Mars. This is our version of Mercury 7, except they happen to be in middle school You right remove now. them from their families, you shave their heads, you put them in jumpsuits in New Mexico, <laughs> and raise them in isolation to become the perfect Martianauts. They, I like that, Martianauts. Yeah. So, so they go to college. And by the time they're 25 and 30, they're the age of what it is. And that's right when the rockets will be ready. And then they end up going to Mars and it will galvanize a nation because people will pay attention to that on a level undreamt of with robots. You got to love robots, but nobody ever named a high school after a robot. And so they'll be daring. We'll be following them. Well, who are, who are these teens uh, as they go into their 20s and it'll alter the culture of the nation to want to become scientists and engineers again. And that's the nation I grew up in. And that's the nation I want to see unfold. And when you create that generation of people, they invent tomorrow. When, when, when the asteroid comes, they don't say, Oh, where do I hide? How do I stockpile food? They instead think to themselves, how do I deflect it? When the hurricane is headed to the coast, run, run. No, they will think, how can we tap the energy of the cyclone and use that energy to run the city that it would otherwise have destroyed? That's the kind of thinking I want to live with in the country that I call home. And that kind of culture comes about when you are exploring. And not everybody gets to do it throughout all of time. America's been able to do it. Not lately, but we've been able to do it. You've got to be sort of wealthy. You've got to be ambitious. And you got to want to know what's on the other side of the hill. Neil deGrasse Tyson, thank you so much for being on The Sound of Young America. Uh, uh, thanks for having me. We've got to My do this pleasure. again sometime. I agree. <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson is an astrophysicist. His upcoming projects include a new version of the TV series Cosmos and a new book titled Space Chronicles. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, John Hodgman. Like George R.R. R. Martin, I've been struggling to finish a book in my series of fantasy novels. That is all, the third in my trilogy of complete world knowledge and fake trivia, will finally be published on November 1st, 2011. So you can please stop writing me letters. Or, if you want, you can start. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our editor is Nick White. Engineering thanks this week to Paul Ruest at Argo Studios. Edgar Rivera at Stepbridge Studios, Chris Monte Belmonte at WRSI The River 93.9, and Elizabeth Stachow and Neil deGrasse Tyson at his Star Talk studio. You can find past episodes of this show online at MaximumFun.org, plus many other podcasts, including my own, Judge John Hodgman. That is all. <laughs>